Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Thursday, September 2nd, we are studying Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 1 to 15. The prophet begins a psalm in response to the word that the Lord has spoken to him in the first two chapters. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us returning guest, the Reverend Dr. Reed Lessing. Dr. Lessing serves as professor of theology and ministry at Concordia University in St. Paul, Minnesota. He's also the author of the recently published book from CPH, Overcoming Life's Sorrows, the Book of Jeremiah. Dr. Lessing, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Good to be back, Tim. Thanks. So we are in Habakkuk 3 today, Dr. Lessing. We've covered the first two chapters already. The style of literature, it seems, shifts here a little bit, and it it certainly is based on what we've read already in terms of the content. What do we need to recall about the prophet Habakkuk and what he's already covered as we prepare to look at what we've got today? Oh, my. It's uh, interesting as um, the month of August uh, 2021 will be remembered by many people, the, the downfall of Afghanistan and the, um, the blitzkrieg of the Taliban. And if you uh, take what you know about that very tragic history and uh, go back to the uh, 7th century BC, uh, Babylon would be likened to the uh, Taliban and uh, everyone else would be, you know, likened to uh, you know, citizens in Afghanistan, including Judah uh, and Jerusalem and, of course, our prophet uh, Habakkuk. They are witnessing uh, the demolition of uh, civilization as they know it. I mean, it is that uh, horrific, uh, even as we are on air uh, and even as we go back um, to the book of Habakkuk. All right. So we've got that that modern day image in our mind. That's the historical context. And Habakkuk, I mean, he falls, you know, in that same context as Jeremiah and several other prophets. But Habakkuk, it seems, has a a unique perspective or he kind of goes behind the scenes and questions God. And, And that's where we've been in the first two chapters. What's what's Habakkuk been talking to God about? What has the Lord been saying that is leading up to the prayer that he's going to give in chapter three? Right. Um. Habakkuk has, has uh, asked God, why uh, have you unleashed the Babylonian hordes uh, upon your people Israel and Judah? Um, and, of course, famously, he says he's going to uh, stand at his watchtower and see if there is a word from the Lord. And there is, you know, again, very famously, Habakkuk 2, verse 4, the righteous will live by faith. Um, so Habakkuk doesn't uh, get the answer to his question, why mm-hmm. Babylon? Um, and neither do we quite often in our uh, topsy-turvy lives. We don't get the answer to our question, why? Uh, finally, Jesus doesn't say, come uh, understand all things or come and I will enlighten you on life's greatest mysteries. Uh, Jesus says, come follow me. 
and that's what faith is and that's what habakkuk then gives uh to the church and you know famously of course <laughs> through paul in romans chapter 1 6 17 yeah so and with that famous verse that we we covered you know in habakkuk 2 verse 4 the the righteous shall live by faith is is chapter 3 Habakkuk putting that into practice, having not having gotten the answer to his question, why, or, you know, something that satisfied maybe, you know, the sensibilities that he came with. Now he turns to God's gift of prayer as if he's putting that answer into practice now. Well, exactly. So um, I was looking especially at uh, the prayer, um, you know, verse two, um, midway through verse two, in the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Uh, so I've been doing some work uh, for the last year or so on the book of Exodus. Um, and the book of Exodus, of course, casts a, a large shadow on uh, really the entire Bible, even going back to Genesis. One could argue that Genesis is is the main backstory for Exodus and kind of sets up uh, Israel's deliverance at the Red Sea uh, in about 1446 BC. So what Habakkuk is doing is uh, the, the work that he is asking God to revive, to restore, to renew, to make current would be a new Exodus. Um, and, and really then that is the template for uh, the prayer or the psalm, the uh, Habakkuk 3, verse 1, according to the uh, <laughs> uh, Shiki Enos, um, I think, um, that, that phrase only appears one at a time in the Old Testament, Psalm 7, verse 1. So many people would take this as a psalm, uh, especially because in verse 9, he uh, uses the term Selah, um, and that's obviously in the book of Psalms. And at the very end of the chapter, of course, we're not getting to this, but it does help us get the context. Um, he, he ends to the choir master with stringed instruments. So technically, this, is, this could fit into the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms has a lot of Exodus-inspired prayers, um, so that's what Habakkuk is doing. He is uh, drawing upon um, Israel's experience in the book of Exodus and saying, God, do it again. Do it again uh, in our days. And that, that fits very well with some of the things we heard from the prophet Jeremiah, where the Lord told Jeremiah that what he was going to do in the return from exile was going to be even bigger than the Exodus. And of course, I mean, that, that theme shows up in other prophets as well. So let, we're going to keep that image in mind that, that Habakkuk is asking God to bring about a new Exodus, see how the book of Exodus casts that shadow. With that, that context that you brought out, that this is very much like a psalm, you know, in those word, that word. And, and if you don't know how to pronounce it as well, Dr. Lessing, I know I'm not going to get it either. Yeah. <laughs> Shigionoth. That, yes. No, that sounds like good uh, uh, South Texan. That's right. That's right. Uh, yeah. Any, do we have, and with, well, with that, and then the, the, the appearance of the word Sela several times here, this being likened to a psalm, as we prepare to read that, how, what are some of the features of psalms, Hebrew poetry that we should be paying attention for as we read this chapter? Boy, a lot of imagery, which we will see, um, and there normally is some repetition with intensity. Uh, that is to say, if we look at verse 3, he came, God came from Teman, 
and then another name for God would be the Holy One um, in that second line. And then uh, another name for this Mount Teman would be Mount Paran. Um, and then you have just one more example from verse 3. His splendor covered the heavens. Uh, and then we have heavens and earth parallel. Uh, and then we have a splendor parallel with, with uh, full of his praise, just looking at the ESV. So we're looking at a lot of uh, repetition with intensity. Normally in Hebrew poetry, the, the second line um, is going to be more intense. It's going to be more exact. It's going to be more to the point. Uh, so those are the, the, the general features, a lot of symbolism uh, and um, a lot of repetition. Very good. Well, let's let's take a look at the text and then begin to, to dig in. This is Habakkuk 3, beginning at verse 1. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to the Shigionoth. O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Teman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. Selah. His brightness was like the light, rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth, he looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered, the everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction, the curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea? When you rode on your horses, on your chariot of salvation, you stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. Selah. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place. At the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear, you marched through the earth in fury, you threshed the nations in anger, you went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. Selah. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. That's our text for today. That's Habakkuk 3, verses 1 to 15. Dr. Lessing, I, we, we talked about these words briefly. Shigianoth, Selah. Do we have any idea of what those words mean? Now, what they mean, certainly what they indicate would be um, probably a tune. That would be the Shigianoth, whatever a tune that would be. And a selah probably means the the end of a section, right, or the end of a refrain in um, in a poem, a hymn. Yeah. So those both are indicators of the type of literature that we're looking at, even if we don't know the precise thing they mean. It's some sort of. Usually, I think it says in the notes like a musical term or some kind of liturgical indication. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. right. So so right. we've got the the type of literature established, and this is a prayer, a psalm from Habakkuk the prophet, and he begins by telling the Lord, "I've I've heard your report and your work. Do I fear? Now is that I mean the, this fear of the Lord? That's 
a big theme in the Old Testament, really the whole Bible, is, mm-hmm. is the fear of the Lord, well, what kind of fear of the Lord is Habakkuk talking about here? Is this a fear and trembling and awe and respect? What What's involved in the fear of the Lord here? Right. It, it would certainly take us back to Proverbs 1-7, which right. says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of understanding uh, and wisdom. Um, th- this would be a shorthand term for uh, to use more uh, New Testament uh, terminology, uh, being justified by grace through faith uh, and uh, manifesting that life of faith in the power of the Spirit in a life of uh, sanctification. Um, so, so it's a, a believer in the grace and mercy of Yahweh, the Lord, uh, who is uh, actively growing, uh, in his or her faith. So all that is encompassed by the fear of the Lord. Um, well, and I think, I mean, it makes that, that term, the fear of the Lord, particularly in the context of Habakkuk, what he's been questioning God about, you know, why is there injustice? And the Lord says, I'm going to bring the Babylonians. And Habakkuk says, well, that, that seems worse. Why, why are you bringing the Babylonians with, with the Lord revealing all of this to Habakkuk, that word, you know, the fear of the Lord, I think, I mean, when I, for example, when I teach confirmation class and we talk about what does it mean to fear and love God, that fear is a a respect for God, an awe for God. But I I think here in Habakkuk particularly, there's a sense in which I'm, I'm afraid that God can use a nation like the Babylonians for his own purposes. There, there's a little bit of fear and trembling involved here. Now that's certainly going to be a faithful fear, but there's a a little bit of, of being afraid of, of trembling, I think, in this as well. Oh, yeah, he certainly gives us that impression. Um, but no, you're right in terms of if we recognize that this is a, a wisdom word, because Proverbs, of course, is a wisdom book. Um, the fear of the Lord, me, another way to look at this would be uh, to look at it in terms of there's two foundational truths to human enlightenment. Number one, there is a God. Number two, you're not him, and neither am I, and neither are any of our listeners. So that puts us in a right relationship with understanding where we fit um, and where if, if, if there is a God and I'm not him, there is a healthy respect of, of awesomeness and, and um, uh you know, fear and, and not just the cowering fear, but um, fear in terms of great respect. Uh, so we would put the fear of the Lord in, in those categories. And we could also put in the category of the first commandments, sure. right? Um, that I don't have any other gods other than this God, Yahweh, who brought the ancestors out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Mm-hmm. Um, so Habakkuk, by this fear of the Lord, is uh, essentially saying in this prayer slash psalm that uh, I don't understand, kind of going back to our uh, first points of the conversation, I don't understand what's going on, uh, but God does, and uh, he's in charge, I'm not. Um, and he's not only in charge, right, toward the end of verse 2, um, he Habakkuk wants to, um, experience and for God to remember mercy, mercy, um, which is just a, a marvelous word. Um, 
And I'll pause here because maybe we don't want to get to that quite yet. <laughs> well, no, I mean, that's that's where this verse, I think, is, is going. Is you talked about, you know, the repetition with intensity as, as verse mm-hmm. two moves on. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. And then, you know, you get this third line, in wrath, remember mercy. And, and that mm-hmm. does seem to be a you know, where he's driving to in this verse and something that I think really governs a lot of what he's praying for in this Psalm. So, I mean, yeah, take us, take us into that part. What does that mean for Habakkuk to ask the Lord to remember mercy in wrath? Right. Um, Certainly the wrath in the context would be the Chaldeans, which obviously are synonymous with the Babylonians. That's the wrath. Um, We've got that. Uh, by sight. What we are working with by faith is that God's going to remember mercy. And uh, remembering then, uh, as I'm sure, no pun intended, but many of your listeners remember, (laughs) uh, in in the Old Testament um, means that God is going to act, act. A good parallel uh, would be in... um, Exodus 2.24, God heard their groaning, right, the Israelites groaning in Egypt. He remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and with Jacob. It's not as though God forgot uh, his covenant. And with Habakkuk, it's not as though God forgot his mercy. And somehow Habakkuk's prayer is kind of uh, getting God to reboot the cosmic computer and say, oh, that's right, I guess I should Show mercy. No, it means God is going to act. So act in mercy, mercy. And and um, the, the idea of mercy uh, takes us back to Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, where uh, this is the first gospel characteristic of who the Lord is. He is in Hebrew, El Rakum. He's a God of mercy. Uh, and the Hebrew we have here in Habakkuk uh, 3, verse 2, is uh, rakim. Rakum, rakim, our listeners can hear the similarities. Uh, so Habakkuk not only is wanting God to revive um, his exodus um, power and might, uh, but also revive his exodus mercy toward his people. And, and to do so in the midst of wrath, I mean, I think, you know, to pray like that, in wrath, remember mercy, ties right in what we're saying with that fear of the Lord, that, that I may not mm-hmm. understand what's going on, and but God does. He's the one who's who's in charge. And and I know, I mean, the, the matter of in wrath, you know, the, the Chaldeans coming, we know from, particularly from Jeremiah and Lamentations that we've been looking at pre- previously, that the people earned this this is what they deserved was God's wrath. And yet in mm-hmm. that fear of the Lord, Habakkuk is able to call out for for mercy from this same God, knowing that's uh-huh. who he is. I, I was there's that uh, it's in Lamentations three where where Jeremiah I can't remember precisely how it's phrased now, but it's that God does not afflict his children from his heart. And it seems mm-hmm. that same idea is, is present here in Habakkuk as well. Well, exactly. And the same idea is is um, also in Psalm 90, Mm. which, uh, you know, now we're not talking about Habakkuk against the Babylonians and God's wrath, uh, but God's wrath against all people. Um, And and Moses prays uh, 
um, were brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath were dismayed. This is Psalm 90, verse uh, 7. Um, and, and yet, right, um, the psalm ends, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love. Psalm 90, verse 14, and it goes on. Um, so, so what we can do is what we see in Habakkuk 3, Habakkuk is is nationalizing, right, uh, the catastrophe of death and destruction. On the other hand, Moses, he personalizes it. Um, and Psalm 90 is, you know, it's kind of tough. Um, the, the message is life is really, really hard, and then you die, right? Yeah. Um, the Bible doesn't mince words. It doesn't promise heaven on earth. There's no utopia around the next you know, political convention. Uh, life is really hard, and then you die uh, because the wages of sin is death. It's just the, that's it. <laughs> it's Romans 6.23. Uh, however, see, we too pray in wrath, right? In in your wrath against me, and what I am in all likelihood, except uh, save for Christ's second coming in in my lifetime, uh, God will say, "Return to dust, read lesson." That's it. The wages of your sin is death, um, and in that wrath. I ask God to remember mercy, and he does. He does. He, he, he remembers it, and he acts upon it um, in any number of ways, especially, you know, by giving us his, uh, the gospel and the sacraments. There's where the mercy is delivered. Um, yeah. Well, and I think with, with that, I mean, the way you brought Psalm 90 in and the way Moses personalizes this, uh, you know, life is hard and then you die. All of all of these these prayers then are ultimately prayers looking forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come because there's, there's gotta be, I mean, God's mercy has to go that far if he's to be true to himself and to really answer these prayers, he's got to overcome even that death that our sins deserve. And thanks be to God, he does in his son, Jesus Christ. Right. Right. I can't help but think of the, the great, uh, uh, Christmas, uh, line, you know, in, in the hymn, uh, his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Um, so as far as the, how far has the curse come? Uh, yeah, what, what Habakkuk says, it's come to us in the 7th century BC. Moses says the curse comes to all people and all creation. But the blessing flows as far as the curse is found. All right. So, Dr. Lessing, as, as the text moves forward then, and you, Habakkuk is asking for this new exodus, and that's gonna, we're going to see how that imagery comes up and over and over again. We get a couple of, of place names. You pointed this out as an example of the parallelism, the repetition with intensity. God came from Teman, the Holy One from Mount Paran. What are these two place names? Why, why is Habakkuk praying that God would come from those places? Yeah, so these places would be south of um, Jude and Jerusalem in the Sinai Desert. Uh, so what Habakkuk envisions um, is that God is going to come from the south because that's, of course, how he led uh, Israel from Mount Sinai. 
to the promised land. He, he actually came from the South. So if you're from like South Texas, this is like a win, 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 right? <laughs> that's right. God came yeah. from Texas. Okay, there you go. Yeah, All right. Right, All right. right. A, a bit of a, a, <laughs> a stretch, but um, getting back to the text itself, right. you know, God is, is coming in um, – you know, with all his might and power, along with his uh, mercy and kindness. So, so coming from the same direction is is the key here to do an even greater thing. The the Exodus once again. Now, how, how about the the second half of that verse? His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was was full of his prey. This is a, I mean, you know, that's a very broad way of speaking. We've gone from what the the Edomite area. Now we're talking about the heavens and the earth here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You're right. You're right. So repetition with intensity. Um, what we would say along these lines would be um, that what God is doing for Israel, uh, God then does for all people of faith, right? Uh, baptized believers in, in Christ Jesus, uh, the uh, this is a, the God not only of Teman and Mount Paran, he's the God of the heavens and the earth. Um, so what Habakkuk is doing, which it, this happens, oh, I wouldn't say often, but often enough in, in prophetic literature, where the, uh, in the specific event is then globalized, we could put it that way, um, that what God does for Israel, he then does see for his people of every age. In this case, Habakkuk 3.3, he's not just coming for Habakkuk, uh, you know, he comes uh, for you and me. Right. In, in our, you know, <laughs> neo-Babylonian problems and uh, pain uh, questions, etc. Right. I mean, so the way and we're going to see this this language, as you said, come up several times, this, you know, this worldwide and how this is going then to apply not just to Habakkuk, not just to the Judites of that time, but to Christians still today. Uh, a prayer that we're hearing Habakkuk make, one that we can use for ourselves as well. We're going to keep talking more about that on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharp Iron here on KFUO. We're talking Habakkuk chapter three with Dr. Reed Lessing. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Thursday, September 2nd. We're studying Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 1 to 15 with the Reverend Dr. Reed Lessing. He is professor of theology and ministry at Concordia University in St. Paul, Minnesota. 
Dr. Lessing, prior to the break, we were looking uh, in verse three, talking about the worldwide reach of what God does, that how he works for his people. Israel ultimately ends up being for the good of all and his son, Jesus Christ. As the imagery continues into verse four, we get a bright imagery. His, his brightness is like the light. Rays are flashing. And then uh, maybe a curious phrase at the end, there he veiled his power. So on the one hand, there's this great brightness from the Lord, but also a veiling of his power. How's, how's the imagery working there in verse four? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, God is, is veiling his power. Um, and his presence uh, vis-a-vis, uh, I would think, the uh, pillar of fire by night and pillar of cloud by day. Um, so what what we have um, really throughout from the, the, these pillars appear for the first time in Exodus chapter 13. Um, but there's no doubt that um, to use, you know, well-worn and well-used and very appropriate um words in with and under uh the pillar of fire and pillar of cloud would be god's real presence he actually uh is there uh these don't symbolize or represent his presence uh no god is actually uh right there and you say well where is that in the bible and i would say well i'm glad you asked um so when we look at the exodus event um we would want to look at uh, Exodus fourteen nineteen, um, which is very helpful to kind of understand uh, some of this. Exodus fourteen nine, the angel of God. So this is the messenger of God. Uh, without going into you know a long you know uh, uh, rabbit hole here, um, we the, the church uh, uh, universal for the last 2000 years has understood this messenger to be uh, Christ um, before he took on flesh. So this is the second person of the Trinity. Um, and he was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. The pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them. Um, so the, the messenger, right? Or in this case, the angel, but messenger of God, um, is um, uh, going before and after the Israelites, and then we have the mention of the pillar of cloud. Uh, and, of course, in verse 20, it says that it lit up the night. Um, so this would appear to be what Habakkuk uh, is referring to. Uh, is God um, always, in, I won't say always, but let me qualify that, for the most part, uh, God veils his presence uh, because no one can see God and live. This is what God tells Moses in Exodus chapter 33. So his presence is veiled. Um, and, and just kind of going back to another Christmas hymn by, uh, I'm pretty sure it's uh, John Wesley, um, talks about how uh, veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Uh, and he's speaking about Jesus. So Jesus has to come veiled, and he's veiled in flesh. Uh, in the Old Testament, he's veiled in the pillar of cloud, pillar of fire. And now he's veiled in flesh. Uh, he's veiled in, in the baptism and holy communion. He's veiled in the Bible. 
Um, there will be a day, though, and this is my point <laughs> earlier, is when we will see him face to face. This is what Paul says, for example, in 1 Corinthians 13. We will see him face to face. No more veil. Um, but, but this is a pretty prominent idea in the Bible. Uh, yeah, so big idea that uh, he comes veiled in power. So and and he is there veiled in power, but it is still his full power. And I think, I mean, one of the passages that comes to my mind with that theme is in First Corinthians one, where where Paul puts it all in the you know Christ crucified. What looks mm-hmm. like foolishness and weakness to us is actually the wisdom and power of God. And and so as I mean, as Habakkuk is praying here. It sounds like he's he's recognizing that when God comes, he will come with power, but it's going to be in, in a veiled way. And and it is it's that faith that, you know, take it back to, to two verse four in Habakkuk, it is that faith that needs to receive how God comes in that veiled way. And and ultimately, you know, Paul puts the center as Christ crucified and, and every I mean, not just, you know, the cross, but all that Christ does. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh no. I mean, you know, we're we're we struck a a mother load of gold here. Uh, this is the way God works. Uh if we are looking for just the sheer political power uh or or creational power, uh we are going to miss uh the activity of God. Uh, and this is just an ongoing motif in the Bible. A, a good example would be First Kings chapter 19, where Elijah is on Mount Horeb, and you know the Lord isn't in the earthquake, he's not in the wind, he's not in the fire, but as we all know, he comes in the still small voice. He's veiled, he's veiled. Um, and certainly another example of this would be in uh, Matthew 25, 31 through 45, where Christ is veiled, right, uh, in in people that we serve as well. And in, as much as you did it to the least of these, you did it unto me. It really caught this radical stuff, you know, um, that uh, usually we're looking for God in, in the big and, and the lights and the mirrors and the crowds and what's sensational. Uh, that's not what Habakkuk teaches and certainly not what scripture teaches. Mm. You know, on the, on the one hand, you know, the Lord does come and, and in a mighty way through Cyrus, you know, he does deliver his people from the exile in Babylon. But ultimately, all these promises <clears throat> have to point us forward to the way that he comes to save his people, as you said, in the incarnation and in the crucifixion and the resurrection in in the person of Jesus Christ, veiled in flesh, the Godhead mm-hmm. see. I mm-hmm. mean, even when we do see him act in those mighty ways, all of it is ultimately wrapped up in what he does in Jesus. And, and that's where we have to see him. Because if we don't see him there, then all of those other mighty ways that he acts are going to only give us like the fear and trembling kind of fear of God. It's only when we see him act in this way that we can be drawn into that true fear of God that Habakkuk's talking about here. Oh, yeah. No, well put. Well put. Yeah, yeah. Dr. Lessing, as as the text continues into to verses five and following, we move into some language that sounds a lot like judgment. So, so verse five, on the one hand, before him goes pestilence 
after him, following him is plague. He's measuring the earth. He's shaking the nations and even mountains and hills that are, you might consider them eternal or everlasting. These are just being brought to nothing. And I think both of those verses drive toward the end of verse six, that it's his, the Lord's, those were the everlasting ways. Can you take us into those two verses, five and six? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you know, pestilence and plague. Um, and let me scoot back just a little bit. What Habakkuk is doing um, is he's not giving us a history of Old Testament salvation in a chronological way. Mm-hmm. That is to say, uh, we were talking about God marching from Mount Sinai, right, from the south. Uh, now uh, we're back to pestilence and plagues, which certainly happened you know, before Mount Sinai and the Ten Commandments. Uh, they happened earlier in the book of uh, Exodus. Uh, he's going to shortly, he being Habakkuk, take us to the tents of Cushan and the land of Midian. Um, well, that that could be a reference to uh, Gideon in Judges six, seven, and eight. Um, so uh, the uh, the movement of the psalm isn't completely chronological. Uh, that's not his point. He's, he's not saying, okay, let me start with the uh, book of Exodus. We'll go through Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth. He's not doing that. He's picking up imagery of God's um, veiled power uh, in the Old Testament. Uh, so in this case, uh, when we're talking about pestilence and plagues, Right. Uh, we're, we're back to the 10 plagues in the book of Exodus, you know, chapters seven through 12. All right. So he's not moving chronologically. That's a, that's a good point. And then I'm, you pointed this out earlier and, and it comes up again before him go pestilence and plague. There's Egypt. But then in verse six, now God is actually measuring the earth and shaking the nation. So here mm-hmm. it's, it's moving outward again. And, and ultimately, I, I think to make that point that it is his worthy everlasting ways. That's where Habakkuk is mm-hmm. driving there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. This alternation between specificity with Egypt or Habakkuk in the 7th century BC and uh, the, the universal uh, appeal to this psalm uh, is that he is the God of the pestilence and plague, uh, but he's also the God who created the earth and, and, uh, sh- and shakes the nations. Uh, which means, right, Habakkuk is inviting us into this song, that, that we can sing this song. Uh, this is our uh, prayer that God would revive us, you know, in our day and in wrath, remember mercy. Uh, moving into verse seven, the tents of Cushion, the land of Midian. It, is that a reference to the book of Judges, do you think? I, I couldn't think of another place that it that might refer to. Right. We're, we're certainly still down south um, because the land of Midian and, and um, of course, Cush, uh, probably, you know, some of these place names, we're not exactly sure where they're at. But uh, in verse seven, Midian does uh, help us to find Cushan uh, and, and Midian would be in the land of Sinai. Uh, of course, Jethro um Moses' father-in-law was a priest of Midian, Exodus 3, verse 1. I'm sorry, I'm all these references to the book of Exodus, but as I said, I'm kind of writing a book on Exodus, so I've got Exodus on the brain here. Um, so it could be, see, 
uh, either uh, Gideon, right, against the mighty menacing Midianites, uh, and or God's march from the south, uh, continuing on. And, and that's what poetry does, right? Uh, it's intentionally sometimes ambivalent. Uh, so we we may remember um, a God, again, marching from uh, Sinai to the promised land, or we may remember the, the great deliverance of uh, Israel through Gideon. Of course, talk about being veiled uh, in weakness. Uh, Gideon says in chapter 6 of Judges, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, I'm the least in my family. See, uh, so God's mighty power is made perfect in weakness many times um yeah so the um yeah in verse eight i'll just you know anticipate that question but go for it you know now we've got rivers and rivers and sea um and you rode on your horses on your chair of salvation that takes us back uh to chapter 14 of exodus right yeah. uh, again before mount sinai they don't get to sinai until exodus chapter 19. Um, pharaoh came after egypt with his horses and chariots right uh but uh, the bible says that uh, the lord yahweh um he's got a whole lot more chariots than um than anybody does and I, I just have to look up this reference here, but it's in um, Psalm 68, um, where it says that God has a, a, a thousand, ten thousand chariots. Um, so if you you think you've got chariots, <laughs> uh, Pharaoh, uh, Yahweh has uh, infinitely more. Um, so there it is. It's in Psalm sixty-eight, seventeen. The chariots of, of God are twice ten thousand, thousands upon thousands. Um, so horses and chariots take on uh, the uh, flavor of nuclear bombs. If you have horses and chariots, you got nukes. See, in the ancient Near East, this is the most powerful military weapon that you can talk about. Um, it's just another way to, in Habakkuk, indicate that um, uh, who has a full monopoly of power in heaven and on earth? Uh, this God, right? Uh, the God of Israel, um, the God of Habakkuk, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, and I mean, the the mention of the you know, your chariot of salvation also brings to mind when Elijah was taken up into heaven, that Elisha sees Elijah taken up and, and he, doesn't he, I can't remember exactly how he phrased it. Does he say the chariots and horsemen of Israel? Yeah, I mean, exactly. And, and yeah. I think that's probably involved here too, that the, the Lord who has all these chariots, mm -hmm. he exercises his power through the prophet or through his word, I think is how we would say it. Oh, exactly. I mean, so uh, the Hebrew there is somewhat famous. Rekav Yisrael Uparashav. That's in Second Kings chapter 2. Uh, the chariots and horses in Israel are not with the king. It's not with the monarchy. It's not with the political establishment. It's with the prophetic movement. Uh, and the prophets, of course, only have the word. Uh, so this is in Second Kings 2, verse 12. Uh, and if we go to a uh, second Kings chapter 13, uh, about verse 13, I need to look this up. But when Elisha's ready to die, uh, 
Um, this is verse 14 in uh, 2 Kings 13. Um, the uh, Israelite King Joash calls Elisha, right, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. Those are only two places in the Old Testament where someone is actually called, a person is called chariots and horses. Uh, they're saying of Elijah in 2 Kings 2, Elisha, 2 Kings 13. You, do you want to know where power is? I mean, power that, that will, will change uh, heaven and earth, the power to redeem and save and in wrath remember mercy? You see it in the prophetic word. Again, it's scandalous. You mean the ultimate power isn't in Washington, D.C.? It's at Grace Lutheran Church and in the... Is it Smith Smithville? It's in Smithville, Texas. Yep. <laughs> exactly. See, right at your pulpit and altar and font, right? The claim is, I mean, it's a radical claim that what happens here is is directing uh, your life more than anywhere else. Mm. See, that's where the horses and chariots are. And again, it's veiled. <laughs> it's veiled. Right. Uh, you can't see it, but you can see it by faith. And uh, that's why we need Habakkuk. That's right. That's right. Yeah, that's fan- fantastic stuff there, Dr. Lessing. As, as the text continues, we got about 10 minutes, so I want to make sure we keep moving. In, in verses 9, 10, 11, 12, it, you know, we get more of this uh, warrior imagery, which, you know, mm-hmm, thinking through the mm-hmm. book of Exodus, that's how the Lord is described in Exodus 15, the song of, of Moses and Miriam. It sounds like he's, that Habakkuk's recalling a lot of that. He's also using mm-hmm. a lot of uh, creation language again, the, the mountains, the waters, the sun, and the moon. Help us through some of the imagery there in, again, verses 9 through 12. Yeah, so the um, the one who comes in wrath to remember mercy is the creator of heaven and earth. The only reason he can recreate and revive and renew and restore and reform <laughs> is because he's done it in the first place. Uh, the creator is, is going to decreate there's some decreation here, right? The verse 10, the mountain saw you and ride, uh, raging rivers. There's decreation, um, but there's also recreation. Uh, so that's in the, the theology of what Habakkuk is, is working with. Um, yeah, and then, of course, we get to this uh, great messianic text, right, uh, in verse 13. Right. Verse 13 says, you went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed, and then you crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. How is that a messianic text? Oh, my. So this is just huge. All of this uh, deliverance for the believer and judgment against the unbeliever, all of this is now uh, laid into the hands of the anointed one. Uh, the Hebrews, as you know, and I'll just tell our listeners, sounds like this Mashiach, uh, which uh, comes as Messiah. Uh, Messiah and Christ are, are synonymous terms. They both mean anointed one. Uh, it, it's just stunning that Habakkuk says all of this salvation, all right, and, and by the way, salvation first appears, just uh, Yeshua, which is, of course, where we get Jesus from. Uh, salvation, the word, uh, appears first in uh, Exodus chapter 14, uh, where Moses uh, tells the people in um, Exodus 14, 13, fear not, stand firm, see the salvation of the Lord. 
so salvation, especially in the Old Testament, um, and the context helps. But certainly the context of Habakkuk 3, we, we've established that he's drawing mightily from uh, the book of Exodus and Exodus images. That The salvation here is an Exodus-like salvation. Um, so it's not salvation in a broad general term uh, for Habakkuk and for most Old Testament authors. They want us to remember the salvation at the Red Sea where the, the mighty Pharaoh with all his horses and chariots, uh, they were soundly defeated uh, by the angel of the Lord who was leading Israel veiled in the cloud, right? Um, and it's all then uh, going to happen um, as the anointed one uh, is delivered, right? Um, and he needs deliverance because he's going to finally be involved in this, if we could use this term, cosmic battle, um, not a localized battle like Babylonians against the Assyrians in Nineveh in 612 or um, the Romans against, um, I don't know, the Seleucid Greeks, whatever. Um, but now it's this cosmic battle against the wicked one. Uh, in Habakkuk 3.13. So this whole idea of crushed, um, I actually, I've, I've got a, a book coming out. It's going to be a couple of years by Concordia Publishing House. It's what Andy Steinman and I, Andy's a friend of mine, teaches at Concordia University in Chicago. It's called The Messiah in the Old Testament. Uh, but I got to write the uh, chapter on the book of Psalms. Uh, and, and the same verb, crush, Makat uh, in Habakkuk 3.13 takes place in uh, perhaps the most important psalm in the book of Psalms. Psalm 110 It's certainly the most quoted psalm uh, in the New Testament, uh, but Makat's crush appears twice in Psalm 110, verses 5 and 6. Um, and, and Psalm 110 is the messianic psalm of the Bible. And the Messiah, who's also a priest after the order of Melchizedek, uh, is going to crush, crush the enemy. Uh, and this is also Balaam's messianic prediction in Numbers 24, 17. Uh, where the star is coming out of Jacob, a scepter shall rise out of Israel, and it shall crush the forehead of Moab, break down all the sons of Sheth. Um, the Messiah then uh, is going to be delivered um, uh, from the, um, the event that he has with the enemy, right, the evil one, Satan, um, and he's going to crush the serpent's head. Of course, we know from Genesis 3.15 that the serpent will crush the Messiah's heel. Um, so there's a lot entailed, right, in Habakkuk 3, verse 13. Um, the, the, the salvation of your people, if we just look at the first line, is going to happen through the deliverance of the anointed one, the Messiah, who is going to crush right, the ancient enemy. In doing so, he's going to be crucified uh, and buried. Uh, but there is a third day, and that's why 
um, there is salvation for Habakkuk and, and for you and me against all of the enemies. Uh, a wonderful verse in, in the Habakkuk psalm. Yeah, a fantastic preaching of Christ right there. Dr. Lesson, we have about three minutes left. Uh, let's talk briefly about the imagery that concludes our section for today in verses 14 and 15. It sounds, again, like some Exodus language comes back up, especially that trampling the, the sea with your horses mm-hmm, and the surging mm-hmm. in mighty waters. Oh, no doubt, no doubt. So what happens is... Um, is within the book of Exodus in chapter 14, um, we have a reference to a place called uh, Baal Zephon, all right? Two times in uh, Exodus 14. That's the only foreign god mentioned in the book of Exodus, all right? So it's, it's really big. Uh, and, and Baal, or Baal Hadad, is the god of the sea. Um, and uh, it was believed by Egyptians and Canaanites, uh, people who inhabited sections of the ancient Near East, that uh, Baal, Hadad, uh, with um, you know his uh, girlfriend Asherah, uh, they would be pretty much in charge of all of the chaos and mighty waters. So within the Bible, um, sometimes water and raging rivers uh, have more of an evil intent. That is to say, that's why Jesus walks on the water, Um, because that's not only something that happened literally, it is his defeat of chaos and evil. Uh, That's what people thought Baal Hadad did, that he finally will dispense of evil and chaos and pain and injustice. But the biblical message, like in Habakkuk 3, verse 15, is that Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he's the one who has authority over the sea. So you you fast forward to the second last chapter in the uh, book of Revelation, uh, Revelation 21, when Christ returns, there's no more sea. What's that mean? It means there's no more evil, chaos, death, mourning, crying, lamentation, because Yahweh's the one who transforms the seas and and the surging mighty waters. Wonderful biblical imagery there. Dr. Reed Lessening is professor of theology and ministry at Concordia University in St. Paul, Minnesota, helping us today with Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 1 to 15. Dr. Lessing, thank you so much for being our guest today. My pleasure, Tim. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. We finish the book of Habakkuk tomorrow, and then we're picking up the prophet Zephaniah. If you have any questions in advance on the prophet Zephaniah, please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or use the open mic feature on the app to send us a message. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.